Thank you, Michael, and good morning, everyone. I'm delighted to be with you once again, worshiping the true and living God at Providence Reformed Church of Bakersfield, albeit virtually. These are strange and bizarre times, and yet I know that we are together in spirit. It's my pleasure to be here in the production center, as it were, to bring God's word to you, and I'm looking very much forward to the time in the providence of God in which we can all be together again and to embrace one another and to extend the right hand of fellowship as believers. If you're like me, you've probably spent the last five months during this pandemic, as most of us have been inside for most of the time, uh, thinking about what's going on in the world around us. And you may well have posed the question as a Christian, what is God doing? What are his purposes during this time? And of course, there's a point past which we're only obviously speculating because his ways and thoughts are so far beyond ours. And we all know if we've been walking with the Lord for any significant period of time that there is really no way to decipher his economy and to know exactly what his mysterious purposes are under any given set of circumstances. So by virtue of not being able to fully comprehend the nature of our God and all of his awesome ways, my head tells me not to ask such questions, but the heart keeps asking them. As one old missionary once asked, what in the world is God doing? And as I've contemplated that in recent months, and as I have studied the minor prophets and have found myself returning to the specific book of Micah, I have been struck by how the conditions in Israel and Judah in the 8th century BC are so parallel to what we see going on in our nation and world around us. Micah was sent by God to prophesy in the 700s BC, the latter portion of that 8th century BC, to tell Israel and Judah, in essence, that their day of reckoning has come because of their sins, God's judgment will be upon them per his commitment and his covenant curses. And we see a lot of the same sins. We see exploitation of the weak and poor by the wealthy. We see corruption. We see terrible violations and abuses of leadership, both civilly and spiritually. We even see violence. Perhaps most disturbing, we see a misunderstanding of the concept of sacrifices and precisely how it is that Israel and Judah should be approaching their God as they need desperately to be delivered from the circumstances and the consequences of the sins in which they find themselves at this particular time. And it's interesting to note that that misunderstanding of how one gets to the covenant God of Israel, how one approaches him is an explanation we find in the sixth chapter of Micah, on the heels of which comes that great statement that is probably best known among believers in the whole prophecy. Micah 6, 8, he has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justly and to love kindness or mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Justice for Micah was very simply the upholding of the will of God, what is moral in order that the people of God might be equipped to respond to his gracious favor, loving him with all of their heart and loving their neighbors as 
themselves. And so in this prophecy where he comes to bring a message of judgment, he's also going to bring a great message of deliverance, that even as their sin has landed them in a hard place in this time in their history, there is going to come one through David's line, the greater Micah, who once and for all will set them free again. And there is pictures, there are pictures that we see in this great prophecy that indicate to us that metaphorically, even as the people of God are taken to a better time and place that is reflective of previous great eras in the history of Israel, even so, all of those within God's salvific remnant will one day, when all is said and done, be finally delivered from all their sins and sorrows and will live in eternity that will be characterized by blessing and goodness that no one has ever experienced. And so I thought we would be encouraged to look at the last chapter of this prophecy, if the Lord wills, over the next two weeks plus today. And we're going to consider the seventh and final chapter. This chapter is a kind of epilogue, if you will, though not technically so. By that, I mean that it it comes and has a, a summation of all of the contents of the previous six chapters, and it does so from three distinct perspectives. In a couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at the final seven verses of the prophecy, verses 14 through 20 of chapter 7, in which Micah presents us with the great concept of reconciliation through the shepherd king. This is a great messianic prophecy, particularly in, in chapter 5, where the prophet foretold, foretells us of the great one, the Bethlehemic king, who will ultimately be the deliverer of God's people. The next week in verses 8 through 13, we're going to consider the corporate dimensions of God's work as he induces repentance and faith unto restoration within the body politic of God. But today, as we survey the first seven verses, we're going to see the prophet himself addressing his own heart, as it were, and taking inventory of his soul and considering the nature of the constitution of sinful man and how it is that his hope ultimately, if he is going to shake out and be among the remnant of God's people, is lodged in a personal trust in that God as his Savior. This series is titled Replete Guilt and Resolved Grace. We're filled with guilt because of our sin, but our God is resolved. He has from all eternity past resolutely pulled out all divine stops to bringing us to himself through the work, ultimately, of the greatest of the prophets. So now let's hear God's word, Micah chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil, to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe. And the great man utters the evil desire of his soul, thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment has come. And now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth 
from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inspired and inerrant word. May he write its truths eternally upon our hearts. Let's once again pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask now that by the move of your spirit, you would impress it deeply upon our hearts, that we might not merely hear, but having heard, we might go forth and by your power and grace be effectual doers, for we ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Isolation and personal trust. Micah is, as he speaks to himself in these first seven verses, we see the first person in verses one and verses seven, is, I believe, much as we have been in recent months, isolated. He's alone. He's taken the time to be by himself, to withdraw and to do some soul searching. And I suggest to you, he needed and God grants what he needs, and we need it today as well, a sense of optimism. That is, where can we look? Where can we, as persons, not looking for a privatized faith, but a personal relationship with the true and living God, how can we assess our own hearts and what is around us, and how can we know that there is hope that he will keep his promises and that he will establish us before himself? And so the major theme today is all individuals who comprise the Lord's chosen remnant are sinful and therefore themselves contributors to the misery of the fallen created order. True believers must always remember their personal need for the salvation that can only come from the God to whom Micah looks and for whom he waits. And so there are three things that I would like for us to note to this end this morning. First of all, a soul's optimism must be found in open recognition, must be found in open recognition. And we're looking here at verses one and two. It's interesting how Micah begins with a cry that might surprise us, given our admiration for him, having read, if you've studied the prophecy up to this point and seen that he no doubt is a righteous man. He says, woe is me. And that's familiar language, is it not? Isaiah, the major prophet who was actually a contemporary of Micah's, said a similar thing. He had had an encounter with God, and he had been uh, between, as it were, two seraphim. He had seen both of them communicating and extolling the Lord and all of his glory, and he was undone by all of that. And he says in Isaiah 6, 6, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And as a result of that, there is a statement as he is blown away by the presence of God. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. He is a sinner who dwells among sinful people. Now, that is the result of an encounter with the Lord himself. The same profession comes here from Micah, but it comes from more indirect dealings of the Lord through providential circumstances. 
Micah is painting a picture here using the metaphor of fruit and the fields and the concept of gleaning to demonstrate lawlessness to which he is connected. Let me show you what I mean. He says, I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have, excuse me, been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The gleaning season for figs was usually in the late spring and for grapes, usually in the late summer, about the time we're in now where we live. And what he is depicting here is having gone out and looked for first fruits that were left over, but he doesn't find them. You'll recall that in accordance with Levitical law, there were to be leftovers of the first fruits for the widows and orphans and for those who were in need. And he goes out and he can't find them. That's what his soul desires. But I want you to understand that this is a picture of something else. It isn't just that Micah or anyone else is hungry and can't find fruit to eat, but rather this is a sign of disregard for the commands of God. This is his way of depicting the sin that is so prevalent around him in his day. He looks upon it and he sees disregard for the ways of God and no interest whatsoever in keeping his law. The godly has perished. This is the word covenant man. We actually came across this in our study of the Psalms when I was with you on previous visits. You recall the term the Hasid is the covenant man of God whom God, as the covenant God, by his hesed, steadfast covenant love, has drawn the covenant man into right relationship with him and by his power makes him faithful in response. Even here in Micah's day, it's the same thing. They've perished. It's as if you can't find them anywhere. There is no one upright among mankind, even the remnant, have gone back to sinning and have uh, found themselves under the consequences of their sin. They all, comprehensive language, is it not? They all are in wait, they lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Now, the key phrase in all of this section of the first two verses, I want you to notice, are the words, for I have become. The prophet himself, as he examines his own heart, is saying, I am like these things that I see. I loved it a moment ago when Pastor Martin, before he read from Romans chapter 1, uh, spoke of the connection, as it were, the kinship between the new man and his old ways. Micah is grappling here with the old nature. He's sensing a connection to all the sin that he sees around him, even though by God's grace his soul desires these things, that is lawfulness, as they are represented by the fruit here. But one can only cry, woe is me, if one recognizes and truly understands that you deserve exactly what you see coming your way, because apart from grace, you're no different at your core than those who are perpetrating these things. We see here a kind of 
there but for the grace of God go I moment, which, as we know, is a clear acknowledgement of the fact that apart from that divine favor, we would surely be involved in all manner of sins that we see around us that are contributing to our distress and to our anxiety. And by our constituent nature being changed, but yet having residual effects of sin within, the only proper response is, woe is me. In Psalm chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, David there is in trouble. He's lamenting the fact that he is ensconced in fear because of what his enemies might do to him. And he says to the Lord, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Notice what he's saying. I'm with you, Lord. I trust in you. But there are qualifiers there. He will enter the Lord's house. Why? Because of the, the thorough uh, abundance, the, the lavish abundance of his steadfast love that his Lord shows to him. He will bow down to his holy temple in the fear of Yahweh. Why? Because he's leading him there. The Lord is in his righteousness. And because of his enemies, he requests that his way, that is the Lord's way, be made straight before him. There's confidence, but it's entirely in the Lord his God. And therefore, when you recognize, I can't do this without you, as R.C. Sproul used to say, I'm in deep weeds without your work and intervention on my behalf. Those are statements of how it is that natural man is no different than those in the world unless God operates precisely and powerfully, not only to change our hearts, but to deliver us from any temporal circumstances that would be upsetting or unsettling to our souls. You've heard it said, uh, St. Augustine uh, once made the statement that we are capable of every sin we have seen our neighbor commit unless God's grace restrains us. And the woe is me, though it's a difficult place to start, it's a blessed place to start to see the man of God modeling for us what we should be saying. It's so easy, and particularly during difficult times as those we are in today, to blame others, to look around and to see all the evil in the world, to think, well, if we could just get rid of those people, we'd be so much better off. If we just had new leadership in politics, if we could just somehow silence some of the fools that we hear out in the world, in the entertainment industry or in the sports world, saying the abysmal things that they say, seldom do we realize that you know, the biggest problem that we'll have on any given day comes from the heart of the one staring back at us out of the mirror in the morning as we shave or as we put our makeup on. Woe is me. I love the end of the first question that we propound in the PCA as members join. Do you recognize, acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope, save in his sovereign mercy? Those are the ingredients of a woe is me. You remember when G.K. Chesterton years ago answered 
an editorial question that was posed in one of the newspapers in England, what is wrong with the world? And he wrote to them and he said, dear sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. We think, my, isn't that pious or noble? But that's the truth. Tim Keller said of that statement that that is the most accurate indication that one understands the message of the gospel. If you get it, you cry, woe is me. If you don't, and you continue in foolishness, the greater Micah will one day say to those who are not repentant, woe unto you, as he did the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23, seven times after verse 13. And what was their problem? They too had misunderstandings, namely about the purpose of sacrifice, the sacrifice that he had come to bring. In the Old Testament, the idea of woe carries with it the meaning of warning. And as we come into the New Testament, it becomes more about judgment. So there is optimism for the soul as you acknowledge openly, without hiding anything, that you too are sinful. And I need to say, woe is me, lest that be said unto me by the greatest prophet to come. Well, secondly, we see that a soul's optimism must be developed through honest assessment. Developed through honest assessment. He continues here to do an analysis of the gamut of humanity and relationships in verses 3 through 6. And he's going to begin, as we see, from the halls of government, as it were, literally right down to the marriage bed and the relationships among those produced out of the marriage bed. Begins in verse 3, their hands are on what is evil to do it well. He mentions three characters here, the prince, the judge, and the great man, or probably the king or the, the head of state. We could apply that to political leaders in our day as well. Uttering their evil desire of their souls, they weave it together. And so what we have here is someone who works for the great man in cahoots with a judicial figure who is taking money in the carrying out of the evil desires of the great man, and they are weaving it together. Isn't that beautiful descriptive language when you think of something being woven together? Sir Walter Scott once said, oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. There's deception. And what we see in the world around us is a network. It is woven together and it seems to be inseparably linked. It seems to be such a tight knit web that a sense of hopelessness can overtake one if one isn't careful. And the descriptive language of how adroit they are, their hands are on what is evil to do it well. He's not just talking about uh, the two hands that each of the three figures cited here have. Um, but he's talking about how each of them, I believe, um, in the Hebrew, both hands, the idea is they are each using both hands to craftily fashion the evil that is desired. We know how important it is to do something well and using both hands. I remember playing baseball as a boy and the coach would always scold us if we missed a ground ball or even a pop fly trying to do it with one hand. Use both hands, they would yell at us. Fly ball coming, secure it with the other hand in the glove, 
have that other hand nearby if you're trying to ground uh, pick up a ground ball in the infield. Two hands produce the best work, and that's what they're doing. That's how conscientious those around Micah are about evil. Notice the contrast, though, that they desire evil out of their souls. And even though Micah is a sinful man, when he says that there is no first ripe fig that his soul desires, that my soul desires, what he's really desirous then of, as we've already noted, is the lawfulness that God requires, not the lawlessness around him to which he himself is tethered. Then he describes in verse four, even the best of this, that's not to say uh, the best at being evil, but the context there is the best of them, that is the most moral among them, and that isn't saying much, is like a briar, the most upright of them, a thorny hedge. Have you ever pricked a finger or your thumb on a, a sharp leaf of a hedge or a briar and it hurts? Well, that's how much pain is inflicted by even those who could be characterized by God's common grace to be among the best in the world in which Micah lives. The day of your watchman, he says in verse 4b, of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. The watchman looked out for the city, and he has in mind here uh, the previous prophets. The time foretold by previous prophets of your day of reckoning, of your punishment, of how it is that your sins would be something you would on some level and to some extent suffer for, has now arrived, and their confusion, probably a reference to those in verse 3, is now at hand. That literally uh, means the day of their panics has arrived. And you can put no trust, even in friends. Neighbors, no confidence in friends. Guard the doors of your mouth. Isn't that beautiful language? Watch what you say to the one who lies in your arms at night. Guard, hold your tongue from her who lies in your arms. Not only from the halls of government, but this was a time where you, you couldn't even be confident in, in pillow talk at the end of the day with your beloved. Now that's how replete everyone is with sin and how far extending the effects are. And trust erodes. And there are all manner of difficulties. And out from that comes the complications in relationships with children and in-laws. Look at verse 6. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. And that word men there basically is referring to humankind. And so a man's enemies are among the people of his own house. How disturbing. One can't read those words without thinking of Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 and following. There Jesus says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Isn't that remarkable how verses 35 and 36 of Matthew 10 are basically uh, Micah 6, verbatim 7, 
Micah 7, 6 verbatim. He, our Lord has that in mind and he assigns, I would suggest to you, new meaning in, in so recalling these verses. Whoever loves father or mother, he continues in verse 37 of Matthew 10, more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In Micah's day, if you heard his words, you would be very melancholy and you would be tempted, I think, to accept what he describes in verses five and six, really uh, as a kind of um, uh, negative side effect or something within the uh, permissible or decretive will of God. The greater Micah comes 700 plus years later, 800 years, whatever, and and says, no, I have specifically set this course for those who are mine. That ought to bring some comfort, although initially it's difficult to swallow. If you're wondering in Micah's day, why are so many departing from me as I trust the covenant God? Why are relationships strained? Because Jesus has come expressly to pierce so as to divide between those most precious of earthly relationships to underscore the necessity and the importance and the primacy of the relationship that he desires to establish with those for whom he gives his life to be included in the remnant of the covenant God. And so we ought to take great solace in the fact that if we've been estranged from a relative because of our connection and commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, that is God's doing in Christ. And it is a blessing because he desires us more than anything. And even as we are his priority, he should be ours and we should serve him alone. There's nothing more important than knowing him and serving him. And he will be our ultimate help. We cannot depend on our relatives but we can and must depend fully upon our God. I was moved recently to read an account in a November 2017 copy of the Christian Post, an article there by Samuel Smith. He tells the story of a young Kenyan woman in her early 20s, raised a Muslim who had been converted to Christ. Her mother had died and her Muslim father had kicked her out of the home because she was not, in his words, growing in her understanding of Allah. She went to live with her aunt and uncle, and they too were very strict and wanted her to learn the Quran and to commit fully to Islam. She began sneaking out of their house and attending a church pastored by a man named John McGenji, and he began to meet with her and she ultimately put her trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and she testified of her new faith at the church and was baptized. With her aunt and uncle and her cousin still not having an awareness of what had happened, she would sneak Bibles into their house and read them at night, the Swahili Bibles. And one morning she was caught doing so by her aunt, and her aunt was livid. But she remained a Christian, reiterating that she had given her life 
to Christ and would continue in the Christian faith because there is eternal life in God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Her conversion to Christianity caused her family to view her as nothing more than an apostate and an infidel, and they kicked her out and disowned her, stripping her of all of her personal possessions, including clothing and shoes. But this 21-year-old Kenyan woman later said this, I will go, this is a quote, I will go as far as it takes to live for God and serve him regardless of the level of persecution I might face in the future. Christ is my hope, and the gospel of salvation must be preached and proclaimed among all peoples. God will help me. And that's development of one's soul optimism through a real assessment. You continue to look honestly at the full swath of humanity and all of the problems there, but the recognition ultimately that there is nothing more important than knowing him and serving him. As Luther said, let goods and kindred go. Jesus has died to save his own and requires of them that they love him with their, their whole hearts. And there is nothing more important than trusting in him and understanding that he is our hope and his gospel must be preached and proclaimed to all the nations. And he will help us. Well, finally, and thirdly in verse 7, we find that a soul's optimism must be sealed by genuine faith. Notice how Micah pivots here. He has surveyed all of the disturbing realities around him. He's examined his own heart and he says, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? We remember the words of Joshua in Joshua 24, verse 15, the people had crossed over then into Canaan, and there were problems of choices that were unwise being made. People were tempted to worship former gods or the gods of the pagans around them. And Joshua says to them that he, choose for yourself whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will choose the Lord. We will serve the Lord. We have a choice to make. We can succumb to the evil around us, or we can stand firm again, and we can say that though others, none may follow, still I will follow Jesus. Though none may come after me, I will be his disciple. Notice the statement of faith. I will look to the Lord. That's an expression of belief. I will wait for the God of my salvation. Waiting is an interesting concept in the scripture. We find ourselves doing that now. We wait, and sometimes we get tired of waiting, but waiting in this context is simply an admission on the part of Micah that he does not have the capacity to hasten or to expedite the purposes of God. That is planned out, and God is bringing it all about in his time. And so, therefore, the one who looks to him as Savior 
is the one who is content to wait, knowing that in time he does all things well. My God, he concludes there, will hear me. We see as we unpack this seventh chapter, and we'll note this more as we get into the next six verses next week, God willing, but this really is a prayer or what constitutes the nature and the components of a prayer. And he is asking God as he looks to him and waiting upon him that he will be his savior. I know you've been studying over the past several months with Pastor Randy, the pastoral epistles. First Timothy 4.10 comes to mind when you read Micah 7, 7. For to this end we toil and strive because we have seen our hope set on the living God, who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. He is the savior of all of his elect within all people groups, every tongue and every tribe on this terrestrial ball, namely those who would believe. And so, yes, we are replete with guilt. But God extends to us in his great resolve, in all of his holiness and kindness and grace, great favor. And we can take hope in that. We don't know what tomorrow holds, but the truth of the matter is that even in far better times than we're experiencing now, we don't know what tomorrow holds, but we know who holds tomorrow. You know, I've probably realized more in the past five months than I have in all of my Christian life, the sobering reality and yet the glorious truth that I'm not a citizen of this world, that I am a pilgrim passing through, that our citizenship is in heaven. Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, Paul reminds the church there of that glorious reality that they are in his safekeeping because their citizenship is with him. Their hope lies in the fact that it is there in that place from which they await a savior, the one who is going to come one day and to transform their lowly bodies into glorious ones by the power that enables him that is Christ even to subject all things to himself. So we have the confidence today that we're going to another place. This is not our home. And the one who is working all things together for our good, the one in control of this whole mess around us, is the Lord Jesus Christ, the one greater than Micah, the one who has come to seal the covenant and to once and for all on that day deliver his people from all of their sins and miseries and that around them. I want to leave you with this. Recently, I was emailing a good friend of mine, Dr. Ralph Davis, an Old Testament scholar who's been a good friend over the years. We had an email exchange and we were talking about the times in which we're living and everything that was going on with each of us as we were catching up. And in the last paragraph of the last email in that volley, he said this, I pray for the lifting of the scourge. But in my realistic moments, I wonder why the Lord would want to. The nation would simply go on heedless. 
and we've really no claim on mercy at all. But Yahweh, he always speaks of the Lord as Yahweh, good Old Testament scholar. But Yahweh is filled with surprises. And we must go on waiting upon him. Let's pray. Gracious and eternal God, our Father, how overwhelmed we are as we consider our own desperation before you. Yet how available you make yourself. You call us to come. You instruct and exhort us to look, and we look to other foolishness around us. May we not turn this way or that, but may we find ourselves during these times and at any time looking full into the wonderful face of Jesus at his wonderful grace, knowing that the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Amen.